Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. And I'm Grace Wan. This is your weekly conversation about where we live. And what matters most. We are live. And we are local. Every Monday night. Right here on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. My co-host Ethan Elkind is off for the night, but you'll hear him later in the show interviewing the members of the Curtis Family C-Notes. They're a family band playing 70s-style San Francisco funk. Get ready to boogie when that comes on. But first, uh, if you haven't noticed, the midterm elections are upon us. All California counties were required to mail out ballots by October 10th, so barring any mail delays, you should now have your ballot in hand. As usual, the ballots were accompanied by hefty voter information pamphlets because, once again, California are not just choosing candidates, they're also being asked to weigh in on a number of propositions. Tonight, we're going to delve into the key issues and races on the statewide ballot, and we'll also talk about what voters in Oakland and San Francisco are being asked to decide. Pull out your ballot, get out your information pamphlet, take some notes, because we're going to get into it. Um, Tonight, I'm pleased to be joined by three guests. First, we've got Alexi Kosef, is a reporter covering California state politics for the nonprofit news organization Cal Matters. Hi, Alexi. Glad to have you back on the show. Yeah, very glad to join you. Thanks for having me on. Great. Um, we also have Mike Eggy. He's a city hall reporter for the San Francisco Standard. Welcome back to State of the Bay, Mike. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me back. Oh, we're glad to have you. And we have Darwin Bondgram. He's the news editor at the Oakland side. Uh, so glad you could be with us here tonight, Darwin. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Yeah. Well, we're going to open the phone lines a little bit early to hear from our listeners. Are you motivated to vote in the upcoming election? What races or propositions are you fired up about? Give us a call. We're at 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. Or send us a message on Twitter at State of Bay. Or email us at stateofthebay at org. So, esteemed panel, um, before we start talking about specific races and propositions, I wanted to get a sense from the three of you where voters' heads are at and what is motivating them at the poll. Like, what's the zeitgeist out there? So, Alexi, let's start with you. What are you hearing and what do you think about what voters have on their minds? You know, I think it's um, a big question mark whether any of the stuff that's happening at the state level is really breaking through. Mm. Uh, you know, with with the things I cover, there's a lot of intersection with the issues that that people are worried about right now, which are, you know, the things that we're all talking and hearing about constantly, the, the economy, inflation, abortion rights, a lot of these issues that are really playing out at the national level. And so I think the discourse of what the implications are for those issues uh, based on control of Congress and all of these federal races is really outweighing um, the state uh, races that I'm covering this year in terms of how much people are paying attention and motivated by them. Darwin, are you seeing the same thing in Oakland? That people are more involved in the national issues than they are in the local? Oh, not at all. No, in Oakland, people are very engaged right now. Um, public safety is a huge issue in the city uh, because of the recent um, increase over the past two years in homicides and shootings and other upticks in crime. Housing affordability and homelessness, which are like, you know, the perennial big mm-hmm. issues in local California politics. Those are of course, huge issues in Oakland right now because the homeless population, you know, went up like 20, 25% um, over the last few years. 
Um, people are really engaged around those kind of issues. And then there's just the question of like, you know, the, the incumbent mayor is turned out. And so people are really engaged in uh, mayoral politics. I know we keep calling this a midterm election and that's what it is nationally, but for Oakland, this is the big show. Right. Um, and Mike, what about San Francisco? Is it similar to what Darwin described for Oakland? Um, I tend to, yeah, I tend to think that voters are still locally activated or activated on local issues, but I think they're also kind of tired because this is going to be our fourth election this yes. year here in San Francisco. <laughs> um and we've had a lot of really, really wow. fractious issues already. Um, you know, last time I was here, we talked about the fluctuation, you know, the effects of COVID and, mm. and, you know, the fluctuations in property crime and things like that. And kids having been sent home from school and have suffering learning loss. And the two recalls we had about the district attorney and the school board members, all of that is sort of wrapped up into this last election uh, supporters of people who were recalled are trying to uh, hope, or they're at least hoping that the voters may get some buyer's remorse of the recalls, mm. things like that. Well, it's just proving that all politics are local, but maybe not statewide local. So, um, well, thank you for that, um, you know, overview of what voters are thinking. And let's just dive into it. Alexi, we have a bunch of statewide offices that are open for elections. Um, Governor, Attorney General, Secretary of State, those we're voting for all of those this time around. And those races are getting, I think, approximately zero attention. Right. This is sort of what I was alluding to. Um, We have a gubernatorial election, but all of the momentum and and interest seems to have been sucked out of the room when Governor Gavin Newsom soundly defeated the recall uh, election against him last fall. Um, It really made it clear that support for him is remains strong in California and he appears headed toward another overwhelming victory this fall to win a second term. So that has really taken a lot of the interest and excitement out of this statewide election. And while we do have some other important um, offices that are up for election this fall, as you mentioned, Attorney General, Secretary of State, which oversees, um, you know, elections. Uh, We have, you know, Treasurer and Controller, which deal with the finances of the state. Uh, These are just not the kinds of races that ever get a huge amount of attention. So um, it has definitely been overshadowed. Mm-hmm. But one race that's of interest to people is the race for controller, where you've got Republican Lonnie Chen and Democrat Malia Cohen. Lonnie Chen might be the first statewide Republican um, candidate who wins office in a really long time. Tell us about um, Chen. So Lonnie Chen, he is a um former uh, political operative himself. He's worked on on many campaigns, including that of uh, Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney in 2012. And now he's sort of entering uh, politics himself, hoping to be controller, which is uh, one of the positions that oversees the finances for the state. Um, He certainly has raised a lot more money and garnered a lot more attention than any other Republican on the ticket this year statewide, but he still faces the fundamental problem that California is an overwhelmingly democratic state. In the primary, he only he got less than 40% of the vote and the 
uh, various Democratic candidates that he was running against combined for basically all of the rest. So he's really going to have to convince some people who supported a Democrat in the primary to cross over and support him if he wants to become the first Republican to win statewide office in more than a decade in California. Mm -hmm. And his chances are looking not so great. Well, I can't say there's a lot of public polling around this one, so you never know. He certainly has, you know, done his best. He's raised a lot of money and um, got his message out there. But, you know, what we can say is that the fundamentals of the electorate are certainly stacked against him. And it, it's a high hurdle for any Republican to get elected in California these days. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Well, let's turn to a race that's a, a really competitive because it has a lot of people running in it. And that um, Darwin is in Oakland. You mentioned already that uh, mayor, current the current mayor, Libby Schaff, she's, been, she's termed out after serving eight years in the position. And now, 10 candidates are vying to replace her. I mean, that was 10. Um, Whoever is elected is going to face all those issues that you raised about um, that are concerning citizens of Oakland, public safety, schools. So tell us, Darwin, who are the front runners in that race? Yeah, I think I think it's hard to actually say who the front runners are, because there's just several people running who are very qualified and have really, you know, thought out platforms and have really serious um, support in the community and have also raised a bunch of money. Um, but it is, you know, there are three current city council members who are running. And just by the fact that they're already on the city council, this is Shang Tao, Lauren Taylor, and Treva Reed. Um, by the fact that they're on the city council currently, you know, they are, they're running very serious campaigns. And then there's um, Ignacio de la Fuente, who was on the city council uh, in the 1990s uh, through 2011, I think. He's running. People are taking him very seriously. There's, um, he's got a lot of financial backing. Uh, there's a nonprofit uh, uh, consultant named Greg Hodge who's running. And there's a civil rights attorney, Alyssa Victory, who's running. They've also um, generated considerable support in the community. So really, you know, there might be front runners. I don't know a lot of polling that's been done that's been made public so far. You know, a few groups have done some polls and, um, may, you know, maybe Shang Tao has a lead. Maybe Lauren Taylor has a lead. But really, I I think that the race is pretty wide open. And it's it's also wide open because, you know, Oakland uses ranked choice voting. So a lot can happen here when the when the votes are actually tabulated in the instant runoff after the after November eighth. And are the candidates in that race because of ranked choice, as you pointed out, Darren? Are they strategizing with each other, saying, you know, put me second or third? Is that happening in the race? Yeah, that that is starting to happen. Um, let me preface this by saying that. You know, in Oakland, the political spectrum, the ideological spectrum is entirely relative, right? But (laughs) there there are some, so, you know, like in Oakland, virtually all the candidates have, you know, pretty liberal views on a lot of things. And if you put them anywhere else in the country, especially a red state, they would be seen as like, you know, a a raving progressive. (laughs) But there are like some who are, you know, more progressive liberal on a lot of issues, particularly like economic um, issues, things like rent control, housing regulations, stuff like that. And then there's some who are more moderate or quote unquote conservative, you know, more on the right than on the left. Um, on the left, 
there's um, some progressive groups that are advocating that people, you know, vote for Shane Tao, Greg Hodge, and, and Elisa, Alyssa Victory uh, as the, you know, quote, people's uh, choice candidates. And then uh, sort of on the, on the relatively right side of the political spectrum, uh, there's some individuals, some groups who are raising funding to support strategic voting around uh, Lauren Taylor, uh, uh, Trevor Reed, and Ignacio de la Fuente. Um, and you see supporters of another candidate, Seneca Scott, who's sort of also on that right side of the political spectrum a little bit. Some of his supporters are talking about, you know, where, where does he fit into this ranked choice strategy with Taylor Reed and De La Fuente? Mm-hmm. Well, we have a, a comment from a listener, Steve from Oakland writes, I read that one of the Oakland mayoral candidates, Sheng Tao, has gotten huge donations from labor unions. Can your guests talk about why that is and how that might affect the race, Darwin? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, uh, labor unions, including the Alameda County uh, Labor Council, the unions that represent uh, city employees, uh, unions that represent um, construction trades, uh, uh, teachers unions have put several hundred thousand dollars into independent expenditure committees that are supporting Shang Tao. Uh, the reason is quite simple, um, as Shang told us in an interview that uh, my news organization did with her um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, she says she is unabashedly for working people. Essentially, the policies that she promotes are very um, union friendly, and uh, of the types of policies that um, some of these some of these unions are promoting. Um, and it's true, uh, organized labor is virtually entirely behind Shang Tao. You don't see any. Uh, there's really no significant amount of money coming from any unions going to any other candidate. Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to be an interesting race, that is for sure. Um, let's move on, Darwin, to the school board. I mean, also a contentious issue in Oakland with um, Oakland families protesting the shutdown of certain schools um, and the equity around that. Tell us who is running, and you know, what about the can- what are they thinking about these key issues? Yeah, so there's there's three uh, board seats that are open: districts two, districts four, district six. Um, it's a this is a seven member board, and then it has two uh, students who ha- who also sit on the board, but their votes aren't are just symbolic. So three three of these open seats. Um, it, there's three people running for each of these seats. Mm. And the stakes here are pretty high because, yeah, OUSD has, you know, gone through um, a lot of strife over the past couple of years, especially over the past year as the board voted to close um, a certain number of schools. And they're going to move forward with closing more schools next year Two two of the three people running in each of these district two, district four, district six races are, have uh, come out publicly opposing school closures and calling for a, a reassessment of those and, and stopping any new school closures going forward. So, you know, depending on who wins those races, the, the balance of power on the, the OUSD board could be significantly shifted that you could have a four, maybe even five person majority voting against further school closures or even revisiting some of the school closures that have happened 
Well, it's certainly, I mean, it's a race that I think has gotten a lot of attention in Oakland. So that's, um, and it's understandable why. Um, Let's turn to San Francisco, Mike, Eggy. San Francisco is in perpetual voting mode, I think. And you pointed out, let's see, in February, 70% of voters ousted three school board members. Then in mid-April, we had a special election um, where Supervisor Matt Haney won the 17th Assembly District. And then there was a June primary election where vote Voters recalled District Attorney Chesa Boudin. So now we're going to the polls again, and we're the people of San Francisco are looking at who their next district attorney is going to be. Tell us about the race and Brooke Jenkins, who was London Breed's appointee to that position. Yeah, it. One of the things that's pretty interesting about San Francisco is that we have. People who get appointed when someone leaves has to face a special election in their own right fairly quickly afterwards. And Brooke Jenkins is in that court. Um, three of the three school board members that she appointed is, are also in that are also in that uh, court as well. Brooke Jenkins uh, was a fairly outspoken uh, prosecutor in the office. She had policy disagreements with Boudin, left and joined the campaign against to recall Boudin, apparently or ostensibly as a volunteer, depending upon how you look at it, um, and at the same time worked for a nonprofit that was researching some legal issues that were supposedly or were tertiarily related to the campaign. Um, And she's facing some inquiry uh, over that. Mm -hmm. But other than that, uh, she has had you know, in some ways, in many ways, this this particular race, I think, is, is really much hers to lose. Um, people are, if you look at the, the poll that we recently did, more than half the people we polled approve of what she's doing. But at the same time, and she also leads among those we polled who have made up their mind who they're going to vote for. Mm-hmm. But that said, a majority of people are still undecided as to who they're going to vote for. Mm-hmm. Um Jenkins is facing John Hamasaki, who is a longtime criminal defense attorney, former police commissioner, very outspoken person. He has a bit of a he had a bit of a brouhaha early in the race over deleting a bunch of tweets that people might have considered questionable. Um, he has sort of inherited the mantle of Chesa Boudin, hoping to uh, implement the similar policies, along with also targeting corruption. Um so, but the issue there is he's an unknown quantity. He's never run for office before. Mm-hmm. He has that tweet issue on him. And again, he's associated and he's freely associated himself with the, with the policies of Boudin, which, right. you know, haven't, you know, we've sort of spoken on that already. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The third, a third candidate in this race is Joe Aliotto Vernez, who is a former police commissioner, former DA investigator, civil rights attorney, labor law attorney, uh, the son of a outspoken and well-known former supervisor, Angela Aliotto, and the grandson of a celebrated former mayor, Joe Aliotto. Um, he is hoping, I think, to he's banking on two things, his name recognition with older voters, mm-hmm. and also the fact that he is offering himself up as sort of the normal choice between what might what some might see as two extremes and though i wouldn't say either hamasaki or jenkins are that extreme in either direction Mm -hmm. but he's the one in the middle 
he is the one that either, you know, if, if you're voting for Jenkins, you're not going to vote for Hamasaki as your second choice. Remember, we have ranked choice voting here in San Francisco. Right. So, you know, if, the, if you're voting for Jenkins, you're not going to vote for Hamasaki. If you're voting for Hamasaki, you're not going to vote for Jenkins. You're going to choose Aliotto as your second choice. He is hoping to be everyone's second choice <laughs> when they get elected. Well, you know, I'm curious about where the police union stands in this race. They were so vehemently opposed to Chesa Boudin when he ran the first time Mm -hmm. and somewhat instrumental in the recall. Where Mm -hmm. have they do they have a favorite candidate? Uh, You know, I should have researched (laughs) that before I came in. However, um, I mean, on, on one level, you would think they would definitely want to support Jenkins simply because she you know, her policies so far are very much in line with what they want to see, particularly in terms of drug enforcement. Mm. But the Aliotos have long had a lot lot of pull with the POA as well. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see how that lands. Yeah, so that's going to be interesting to read. I mean, I may very well get off this broadcast and say, hey, Mike, you (laughs) forgot to mention the POA. Hopefully someone will call in and tell us if they have. Well, those. maybe someone will call in and then definitely yeah. tweet it out and we'll retweet the answer. Um, exactly. L- last question about Jenkins. I mean, some of the policies that she's talking about really going after the the dealers themselves. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's people, some critics are saying that it has a remnant of drug war on drugs feel about um, how she's approaching the problem. What what are is that going to is that just for politics and for the election or is that really what Jenkins thinks is um, the right kind of policy to have? I tend to think the latter. Mm-hmm. I think if you look at the situation, you know, just driving down Market Street and seeing the current situation uh, with the sale and use of fentanyl, and again, this is not unique to San Francisco. I mean. Philadelphia especially has a big problem. All of our big cities are having horrible problems with fentanyl use. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think people are looking at the situation and they're just utterly repulsed by it. and They don't know what else to do. Right. And they're, they're looking at more alternative solutions and they're just not going to work the same way or as quickly to deal with this problem. Yeah, it's a, it'll be an interesting race. I mean, I think that there's a part of it, a lot of these people are appointed, have been appointed by London Breed. I mean, yes. are the races referendums on um, London Breed's ability to have tailcoats um, that, that bring candidates along or a, a referendum on her policies? I think yes and no. I think that in terms of the DA, uh, Brooke Jenkins, and I think also to an extent, with uh, the District 6 supervisors race, that is certainly an issue. With the school board, I tend to think that's a bit less because the the recall movement happened it's sort of independent of London Breed. She sort of went along with it towards the end, but mm. and she didn't she did appoint these these three uh, school board members who are up for essentially up for election in their own right, and there are three people challenging them. Um, but I think there's once we talk about the school board, we'll talk more about the internal politics. There. Right, but, uh, right. And let me but re- yeah, I, I think there, there is, there, it's a mixed referendum on the mayor. Well, that's for sure. Let's, let me reintroduce the program. This is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW Bay Area. I'm Grace Wan. Tonight, we're talking about the November 8th election, and we have a panel of experts. We've got Mike Eggy of the San Francisco Standard, Darwin Bond-Graham of Oakland Side, and Alexi Kosoff of Cal Matters. And we're always interested in hearing what 
what you, our listeners, have to say. What issues or candidates do you support or oppose? Give us a call to share your thoughts. You can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. Or email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org. Or find us on Twitter. We're at State of Bay. Um, Before that quick break, Mike, we were talking about the supervisor's race, and you mentioned District 6. That's Uh um, between Matt Dorsey, a breed appointee, uh, or that is running against Honey Mahogany, a transgender activist. What do we think about that race? Uh, It's going to be extremely close, um, and I think it's going to be very interesting because if you if you went to the debates and listened to them talk about what the policy concerns are and what the end results of those policies should be, dealing with situations like the drug problem and housing uh, and quality of life issues, they kind of sort of support the same policy ends, but they have different approaches on how to get there. Mm. Um, Dorsey being a little bit more recovery police-oriented, um, uh, mahogany being a bit more alternative solutions oriented. Um, both want to build more housing, um, things like that. But, you know, they're slightly different in those ways. One of the, Both District 6 and District 4, which I hopefully we'll have time to talk about later, are about, are, they kind of contrast different kinds of incumbency. Mm-hmm. Matt Dorsey is an appointed incumbent. And on one level, that would probably count against him. And in the past, it has. So he is handicapped in that regard. But we went through a very fractious redistricting process earlier this year. And Not as bad as Los Angeles, as I think. <laughs> Based on the council, I, the city council issues. Put, <laughs> you, you had to be there. Go to our site. We'll look at our coverage of the, of the okay. redistricting. Um, but, uh, you know, and what happened was that District 6, which used to be the Tenderloin, Civic Center, and Soma put together, is now basically just Soma and Mission Bay. Mm. So those, a lot of those historically considered at-risk neighborhoods or poorer neighborhoods have been separated away. Uh, and that's sort of, there's a perception that that tends to dilute the power of the affordable housing nonprofits yeah. that have, and advocates that have controlled the politics there. And given more power to the new neighborhoods like the East Cut and uh, Mission Bay, et cetera. What is the East Cut, Mike? I mean, I saw a banner for that uh, not too long ago, and I thought, where is that exactly? Uh, it is It's somewhere near Rincon Center and the mm. Trans Bay Terminal. Mm-hmm. I I don't quite know. I've lived in North Beach for years. and I just <laughs> it's, a, it's a real estate sure I, mystery. Yeah. It is, it is, but it's official. It's, I mean, if they have their own community benefit district, it's official. Yep. And there is yep. an East Coast community benefit district. So, mm-hmm. um, But again, that's one of those neighborhoods that should come out and presumably vote for Dorsey. Well, we don't know. I mean, the thing with Honey Mahogany is she's charismatic. She's a history-making, unique candidate. And at the same time, she's also sort of done, you know, she's been in government. She worked for... Uh, Matt Haney, she's a business owner in the Soma, you know, so she's, uh, you know, so so she's got both sides of those, the experience and the uniqueness and the fact that she would be a history-making candidate. Jane Fonda endorsed her today. Mm. Um, And she's also going to have the Democratic Party and the Labor Council heavily on her side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. whereas Dorsey is going to have to rely on uh, other groups like, uh, you know, developers, business groups, et cetera, housing groups, et cetera, to help with things like independent expenditures, mm -hmm. uh, as well as his own campaign to get volunteers out. And, uh, well, and you were contrasting that, you know, um, Dorsey is the incumbent, he's the appointee, and I think you mentioned District 4 with the incumbent there is Supervisor Gordon Marr, who's mm -hmm. long been in politics, um, yes. and he's looking for a second term representing the outer sunset. And in Correct. that race, I mean, that's a race where, you know, Asian voters in San Francisco have really shown their power and their pull, particularly with the school district recalls. Yep. Um, and is he is he considered a leading light of that coalition? Um, and because that's where the outer sunset really has a concentration of Asian voters. Um, Gordon Marr is in a bit of a pickle. I don't know if he's vulnerable enough to get defenestrated from office, but <laughs> he, you know, Gordon Marr comes from the progressive political coalition. He's worked in the labor movement. He worked, you know, he's longtime head of, um, I be believe Chinese Rome Affirmative Action or one of those, uh, one of those nonprofit groups. Right. And, uh, he was elected succeeding a long line of moderate Chinese American AIDS and former, you know, Fiona Ma, uh, Katie Tang, uh, Carmen Chu, et cetera. And then he comes along and he had a lot of help from labor. Um, and he's getting a lot of help from labor now. Labor Neighbor, which is the pack of the San Francisco Labor Council. Um, actually, Labor Neighbor, I think, is also a national program from the different unions. So it's, it's a model that's used in most cities. They just plunked down like over $100,000 on different types of independent expenditures in support of Gordon Barr and his campaign. Wow. They did the same thing four years ago. Um, that said, Joel and Guardio has raised more money, but overall, but, uh, you know, so they're going to be, they're going to do what they can to heavily support him in that race. And on one level, it's logical because, you know, there are a lot of retired city employees that live in the sunset and so on. But in some ways, especially this year, you know, tremendous, overwhelming support for the re for both recalls in the Sunset District, and Gordon Marr being part of that progressive coalition that opposed the recalls, he has had to sort of adopt this position of quiet ambivalence about those movements. And hmm. some people find that kind of lacking. You know, like if you were aware of what happened at the Democratic Central Committee, the governing body of the Demo local Democratic Party, they sort of crafted the endorsement process not only so that they could end up endorsing Hamasaki, but also it would allow both Marr and Mahogany to abstain from the race because yeah. they want to sort of keep their hands clean right. with regards to this issue. It's tricky, as they say. Um, well, I feel like the three of you have given us a really good sense of some of the key races among candidates that are happening at the state and local levels. And I wanted to talk about propositions in both the state and the cities. Um, and I wanted to start, Alexi, with Proposition 1. That's the proposition to amend the state's constitution to include reproductive freedom as a constitutional right. Uh, Gavin Newsom has a television ad out about that. Um, is this controversial? Is this exp experiencing opposition? Uh, yes, uh, I think it's sort of impossible to wade into abortion rights as an issue without generating some controversy. Um, as you mentioned, this proposition would put uh, the right to abortion and the right to contraception explicitly into California's state constitution. Um, legal cases have already sort of defined a protected right in California through a right to privacy that exists. But uh, 
abortion rights supporters wanted to be more explicit about that and uh, frankly also saw this as a way to get an issue on the ballot that might drive more Democratic voters to the polls. Um, But uh, the way that it's written, which just very generally um, expresses that right to an abortion, has uh, raised concerns from opponents that it is overly vague and would open the door to essentially override all existing restrictions on abortion in the state and allow abortion up to the moment of birth. Ah. Uh, Supporters of the measure dispute that interpretation, but it's likely that if this passes, there will be legal fights to come and the courts will ultimately have to weigh in on that. Mm. Good to know. Um, Another proposition that's taking a lot of... um, lot of ad time is Proposition 30. It would raise taxes on millionaires in order to fund electric vehicle incentives and infrastructure. It sounds like, as I just described it, something that Gavin Newsom would be really into, but it it seems that the governor is opposed to this. And we have a clip of him talking about how he feels about it. Let's hear it. Fellow Californians, I need to warn you about Proposition 30. One company's cynical scheme to grab a huge taxpayer-funded subsidy. Don't be fooled. Prop 30 is being advertised as a climate initiative. But in reality, it was devised by a single corporation to funnel state income taxes to benefit their company. And the company he's talking about is Lyft. Um, Alexi, what's going on behind this proposition? It is one that has made for some strange political allies because... Gavin Newsom, just weeks after encouraging the state legislature to pass a, you know, a package of legislation that pushes California's climate goals uh, much further than they've ever been, um, is now on the opposite side of this initiative from pretty much every major environmental group in the state. Um, And at the same time, you know, he's joined by many wealthy Californians and the Republican Party in opposing this measure. So there's a lot of, you know, back and forth essentially about whether it's necessary to pass a measure like this and set aside a dedicated stream for, you know, incentives for people to buy electric cars, for electric vehicle charging infrastructure, or whether the state is already doing enough. Um, You know, it has set aside billions of dollars toward this purpose Um, already through the regular budget process and whether an initiative like this is unnecessary and we should just, you know, allow the current funding and state uh, process to play out separately from this additional tax. Um, it's a it's a fascinating um, proposition because of it kind of underlay shows all the politics that are happening behind the scenes. Um, Okay, so then we've also got Prop 29. Prop 29 would impose new rules on dialysis clinics. And for me, the overriding question is, why are Californians once again being asked to vote on this niche topic? I mean, this is the third election in a row where California voters are being asked to consider putting new rules in place for dialysis clinics. Shouldn't that be something that the the legislature is handling? So this is um, sort of one of the unfortunate outcomes, perhaps, of this initiative process is that any group with enough money can qualify any 
uh, initiative for the ballot if they desire. And in this case, essentially, the union that represents dialysis clinic employees and is putting California voters in the middle of its bargaining and other battles with the few dialysis clinic uh, owners that exist in the state. So that's why you're seeing this come up over and over again. There's, you know, all kinds of fights over pay and how many patients each, you know, uh, clinic worker needs to take care of the kinds of things that might be settled in contracts. um, And because they haven't been able to get to a place where they're satisfied, the union has brought this issue back to the voters again and again as a bargaining chip. And uh, the voters the first two times voted down their proposals. And we'll see what happens this year, but seems likely headed to defeat once again. That's, I mean, fascinating. I mean, it just the amount of money that's being spent on some of these. I mean, I, I keep seeing ad after ad after ad, and I don't even watch that much television. So it's just kind of shocking how much money is spent on these kind of niche issues. Yeah, well, we're, we're up to almost half a billion dollars for the two sports betting initiatives, which you haven't mentioned yet, Proposition 26 and 27. Um, one which is supported by California's uh, Native American tribes, um, that would give them uh, the right to offer sports betting. Um, and another supported by gaming companies like FanDuel and DraftKings that would allow for online sports betting in the state. And so there's you know, a very intense battle going on between these two sides. They've spent hundreds of millions of dollars to support their own initiative and bash the other one. Um, it looks like the end result is that both of them will go down in defeat, but... Mm-hmm. Along the way, obviously, um, hundreds of millions of dollars will have been wasted. I mean, somebody's somebody's making money. I guess that's the TV station. Yes, a lot of consultants. <laughs> consult- this is the year to become a consultant, note to self. Um, well, I want to read this email that we have from Shannon. She writes, or he writes, I was a lifelong Democrat and socialist. I've do- donated to Bernie Sanders and many other liberal Democratic politicians. I despise Donald Trump and the Trumpsters. So I'm sure this will surprise you that I am now voting only for anti-crime politicians. I'm now gritting my teeth and voting for tough on crime candidates, which means Republicans. Too many so-called progressive Democrats are far too lenient with violent criminals. And I wanted to bring that to you, Darwin. I mean, here's a voter who's, you know, bread and butter liberal, but is so, you know, just seems to be upset with kind of quality of life issues that they're leaning towards voting Republican. Is that something that you've seen in Oakland or Berkeley? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's the big question in a lot of local elections this year is how how many people who are, you know, o- Oakland is a progressive city. It's that the, the majority of residents are, you know, very liberal on social issues and economic issues. Uh, I think the big question is how many of them have like reassessed where they stand on uh, the question of crime and public safety. And it comes at a really interesting moment because just two years ago, we had this, you know, national reckoning around the question of policing and society. And I think for the first time, a lot of these um, more radical ideas about how to transform society in ways that, you know, might require less police enforcement and might result in locking fewer people up in uh, jails and prisons 
um, you know, really reassessing the way that prosecutors uh, go after people, uh, ideas around restorative justice, right? Things like that were becoming mainstream for a moment. Mm -hmm. And and now we're seeing this whiplash where it seems like a lot of people um, uh, maybe are, I mean, I guess I I should pose this as a question because I don't think we really know yet. And I think the elections at the local level will will be a diagnostic of this site to some extent, you know, how many people um, are like that person who just wrote in, you know, I'm liberal on social issues, but when it comes to crime, I'm going to vote conservative. Right. I think that will play into probably the mayor's race in Oakland and and for sure the DA's race in San Francisco. You know, looking at Oakland um, briefly, uh, Darwin, with the there's a most talked about measure there is Measure T, which would impose a progressive business tax. I mean, is that something that the community is in favor of, or is there a feeling like you know there's inflation, a recession's coming? Is this time to tax our small businesses, or maybe is this a time to not do that? Oh no, I think I think there's considerable support for this one, and it's a really interesting backstory. Um, you know, this began as a proposal from several city council members. Um, and, and the idea essentially is create a progressive, uh, progressively structured business tax, right, where uh, large corporations who make many millions of dollars in gross receipts, basically profits, right, they would pay a slightly higher rate than a smaller business. So like, you know, Safeway, which has like, you know, hundreds of large grocery stores and hundreds of millions in profits would pay a higher rate than like the corner store that also sells groceries. Mm. Um, These council members came with a proposal um, and they were countered on the left by labor unions who wanted an even more progressively structured uh, proposal that would have raised even more revenue for the city by increasing the tax rates a little bit more on large corporations. And then from the right, they were countered by the Oakland Chamber of Commerce and some other business groups who were like, no, 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 no. Um, I think those business groups realized that this measure is a winner, mm-hmm. no matter what, in a city like Oakland, where yeah. people widely recognize that the city needs more money to pay for services, no matter what you think those services might be. So instead of opposing this, the business groups propose a lower tax rate on large corporations. There were a lot of talks and behind the scenes, they came together and now they're all supporting Measure T. Wow. Well, there you go. There you go. Um, I want to read another email from Cornelius. He writes, and this one's for you, Mike. Brooke Jenkins is definitely supported by the Police Officer Association. I am supporting John Hamasaki for DA. And Matt Dorsey was a spokesperson for the SF Police before he was appointed as a district supervisor by Mayor London Breed. And I think that's important information for people to know. So, um, Mike, in the time that we have left, I wanted to take up the, a prop- set of propositions in the city, and it's the third rail of transportation, and that is banning cars from the Great Highway and JFK Ooh. Drive. <laughs> I mean, there has been a lot of ink spilled on whether cars should be on either of those two roadways. What's happening now and what's going to prevail? Well, we've got two measures on the ballot. Well, we've got three measures on the ballot. Uh, Two are the sort of pro-car-free JFK ones. One of the one is more of a housekeeping measure with regards to the administration of the garage. But the two big ones are I and J. I would be a categorical statement saying that both JFK Drive and Golden Gate Park and the Great Highway would be reopened to car traffic. 
Now, I probably should offer a bit of a disclaimer here because before I worked at the Standard, I used to work for Platinum Advisors who are still quite instrumental in the messaging of the fine arts museums mm -hmm. that support this measure. So with that out of the way, I will, I will basically say that also the San Francisco Standard did a poll. People seem to be kind of on the fence about either of these. Mm. And I think on one hand, you've got a lot of people who were cooped up during COVID and saw the, saw the ability to go to the park, walk, teach their kids to ride their bikes, et cetera, not only with JFK Drive, but the, all the other slow streets that were implemented around the city as sort of an awakening of what you could really do with a car-free city or a, mm -hmm. a city with less cars. Um, on the other side, you've got sort of two factions. You've got the fine arts museums who really do see the closure of JFK Drive as an as a existential threat. They really see it as a factor in their inability to recover from the dip in attendance that they suffered because of COVID. Um, and then you've also got people who live on the west side, say in the South Richmond or the North Sunset, who regularly used to use Golden Gate Park as kind of a thoroughfare and as a parking lot. I mean, people don't admit this, but there's like there's like 5,000 parking spaces in Golden Gate Park. People yes. use it as a parking lot. Right. Um, and we can debate whether that's problematic or not. I've never owned a car, you know, whatever. But And they also use the Great Highway a lot. Now, I can see why they would include the Great Highway together with this because they want to be able to bring those people together. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the problem with the Great Highway is that it's really running into something really unsustainable, which is sea level rise and beach erosion. The, the only way that, that they can satisfy the demands of this measure, as far as the Great Highway is concerned, and the controller did a report and said, the only way you can really satisfy this is to build an $80 million seawall. Yipes. Exactly. <laughs> so that, that's sort of around the necks of this issue. It's sort of around the, the neck of this issue like a millstone. Right. 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 Uh, but, you know, but still, you know, I think not only are you dealing with people who are kind of, you know, on the fence about this issue, but you're all, you know, one of the you know board president, Shaman Walton, earlier this year sort of created a debate about how working class people and people of color don't necessarily have convenient access to the parks right now. Um, you know, I mean, try it. Take the eight or the nine to Market Street and then the six or the 21 to the park and see how long it takes. Right. Um, you know, and a lot of them have been shoehorned into lifestyle choices that necessitate the use of cars. Yeah, right. Um, but and so there's so you've got this sort of culture war as well. But that said, you know, parks are parks. We should probably not have that many cars in but. Well, it just goes to show you that, <laughs> that, I mean, honestly, local politics are always more fascinating than anything else. I mean, exactly. I know I know we're fascinated by what happens to Donald Trump and, and the like, but I'll say to the listeners out there, you know, get your readers on and start reading a lot more about local politics and what's happening around you. You will be fascinated by what's happening. Absolutely. And I think our listeners have been for sure well-educated by the three of you. And I want to thank Darwin Bond-Graham. He's the news editor at the Oakland side. Mike Eggy, the City Hall reporter for the San Francisco Standard. And Alexi Kosoff, the report, a reporter covering California state politics for the nonprofit news organization Cal Matters. Thank you to the three of you for joining me today. I feel much better about my um, voter pamphlet. I know what I can do now.
Thanks Thank you very much. I'm very glad that you feel that way. Yes. <laughs> and to come back to State of the Bay soon, we'd love to have you. And now, coming up after the break, we'll hear from my co-host, Ethan Elkind. He has an interview with the Curtis Family C-Notes. It's a funk city situation. Stay with us. <laughs> Family bands have always appealed to romanticized notions of what a family is. And San Francisco has its own family band, the Curtis Family C-Notes, which consists of Papa and Mama C and their five children. They sing, they dance, and they have a distinctive 70s San Francisco funk sound and look. You may have seen the Curtis Family C-Notes on America's Got Talent, or maybe at a Warriors halftime show, or in a recent JCPenney commercial. They also have released an album called Awaken. So I'm so pleased to be sitting down with two of the seven family members, Papa C and 15-year-old Isis. Papa C and Isis, welcome to State of the Bay. Greetings. Thank you for having us. Glad you could join us. It's a real Bay Area story here. So first of all, Papa C, how did that band get started? We've always sang together. Our children love to sing because my wife and I are both music teachers. So um, we would sing in church and sing for different functions. The children had done the national anthem for San Francisco Mayor London Breeze inauguration. And so um, we would have the instruments in the living room. You know, I taught them different things on the instruments. But what really made this happen was um, I was in the back room on a conference call and I told my wife, I said, Dola, go ahead and tell them to turn that music down. And when she went in there, they were in there playing White Rabbit had picked up the instruments and playing it on their own prolifically. My daughter, Isis, she was on the drums singing the lead. When we discovered that, the lights went on. And I said, you know what? I think we're going to cultivate the band. <laughs> well, it's very appropriate that it was Jefferson Airplane, another San Francisco band that opened you and your wife's eyes to the talent that your children have. It. And how did you guys get your breaks here? How did this all come together where the really became known by the public? Oh, um, live streaming. So uh, CMC, after the lockdown, CMC uh, gave us, oh yeah, Community Music Center, CMC. They um, uh, they asked us to do live like every Tuesday for- uh, For the pandemic. Yeah, for the pandemic, for like, people on online. And we just made it our own, which was Monday Music Lives. Yeah, we were working with Lynn Westbrook and the uh, United Council, Weather Brown's Kitchen. We were working with IT Bookman, with the church, United Methodist, and with different entities all over the city. And so from that, with Lynn, we founded a program called Food for Your Body, Food for Your Soul. So we delivered the groceries, and then we would sing to these people. And this is how all of that really started. Well, it's wonderful to hear just that you were bringing such joy to people during that really tough time during the pandemic shutdown. But I know that your family has experienced a lot of hardship and you were unhoused for a while. Can you describe a bit what that was like? Well, for my wife, myself, and the two older, 
they understood we were home. <laughs> the, the funny part about that is that the younger three thought that we were on some sort of adventure. So that kind of softened the blow a bit. Um, mm -hmm. So what happened was when the housing crisis, we had our own home and I got laid off. Money stopped coming in. So we went through our savings as quick as you could think, staying in hotels, sleeping in our van. And at some point our van went out and we slept in one of my best friend's van. You know, I'm going to tell you, you never know who your friends are until you experience that kind of adversity because it became an issue with many of our own family members and some of our friends. But there were some friends who really helped us to get back on our feet. And uh, mm -hmm. so thankful to them. It was quite a struggle. I can imagine how challenging that would be with a big family and uh, to go through that kind of hardship. But I mean, Isis, what are your recollections of that time? Well, the only memory I have of that is just like, I woke up and everyone was asleep in the car and we were out parked in a parking lot. <laughs> That's like the one memory I have of it besides going from motel to motel. Well, let's talk about your new album. It's called Awaken, as you mentioned earlier, and it, Feature songs and titles that are really optimistic, like, for example, Keep a Positive Mind, Happy Hippie. A number of the songs have the word love in the title. What were some of the key themes that you were really trying to get across with this album? We wanted to present love in our album. We also wanted to represent family as well. Personally, I think we also wanted to uh, present fun and the sound that San Francisco has brought to the world. You know, I was asked by Pam Moore in an interview a long time ago, and she asked me, what is the San Francisco being? I told her it's revolutionary. It's eclectic. It's trailblazing. It's, you know, you can't put it in category like the sound of Memphis or the sound of New Orleans or the sound of Chicago. But when I want the funk, I come to the San Francisco Bay Area. And I believe that energy is still here. Yeah, I mean, we have such a great musical tradition in the Bay Area, but hopefully you guys are, are, are bringing that back to a wider audience. And I wanted to ask about the America's Got Talent appearance. I think that's probably where most people around the country know about you guys. So what was that like? How did that come about? Is there any way I could bring my wife in on that? If she's around, we'd love to have her pop in. Right here. Yeah. So first of all, you sounded great in that America's Got Talent performance. That was, You really brought the house down. I'm talking to Mama C here. Walk us through how that came together, how the performance and appearance came together. Uh, well, we got a DM on Instagram and then a phone call on our business line. And I didn't know it was real because I was like, is this real? Because people have to audition for your show and this doesn't sound real. And so I hung up and she had to call back. And I looked her up while I had her online. And then that's when I learned that there are producers that will reach out to acts. And there was a lot of back and forth in terms of like songs they want done. And it was just, we just wanted to be able to do what we wanted to do. And what was great was that when we decided on Stevie Wonders, I was made to love her, that we got the okay to do that. So they flew us out to LA and it was so great because when we were there filming, it felt like a really fun circus. 
and we made friends with all of the other acts. What's interesting about the show is that so much filming is done, not necessarily for the music. The music was just a total of like 15 minutes, yeah. but there's so much filming, you know, all Every day. Yeah. For that first episode we were on, it was like two days of 10 hour, like you're on location for shooting. And we were just so happy to be there with other artists. And it did not feel like a competition because there's such a variety. Most people that were there were just so lovely. That's a wonderful story. Well, we've actually got a clip. Let's hear a little bit of that performance. And for listeners who want to hear you play, either live or on the internet, where can we check out the next performance? On Instagram, Facebook, uh, and YouTube at the Curtis Family C-Notes. And then we also have a website, thecurtisfamilycnotes.com. They want to check us out and buy our CD and our merchandise. We got shirts. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely let listeners know about that we'll put that on our website and papa c mama c isis from the curtis family c notes thank you so much for for joining us on state of the bay and best of luck with the performances and recordings to come and uh, thank you for bringing musical joy to so many people oh thank you Well, that's State of the Bay this week, and if you are not jamming in your seat while you listen to that interview, I do not know what is up. That band sounds incredible. We want to thank all of our guests and listeners this evening for being part of the conversation. For more information about this and other State of the Bay shows, visit our page, State of the Bay, on KALW.org. If you have any questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, let us know. Email us at any time at stateofthebay at KALW.org. We also take story ideas, so send those along. Make sure to join us next week when we'll take an even deeper dive into Proposition 30, and we'll hear about the advances in research and policies for ACEs, that's Adverse Childhood Experiences. Tonight's show was produced by Chris Nooney and Wendy Holcomb. It was engineered by David Kwan, and David Damian Miner, our amazing Damian Miner, was our board operator. Good night, everyone, and thanks for listening.